The first reading is from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and verses 6 to 14, and you'll find it on page 353. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets, and verse 6, Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he had struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Luke is chapter 9, beginning at verse uh, 51, and you'll find it on page 982. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go and bury my father. 
Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Holy Spirit, come and open up your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday at the cathedral, the ordinations took place, including that of our own John Huffman um, being ordained deacon. And uh, it's a weighty kind of service if you've ever been to that. You really do gather by the end of it that something very permanent is uh, being conferred on these people as they step forward to take up this kind of ministry. And uh, as he always does, Archbishop Justin spoke to the families and friends of those who were being ordained, thanking them for their encouragement and of their enabling of the journey that these ordinands had been on. Whether they fully understood what it was their family member was doing, um, by entering ordained ministry, or whether they had been supportive but entirely baffled the whole time <laughs> about what it was um, their family member was entering into and why on earth they wanted to do it. Understanding the cost. The first time I ever found my own faith to be a costly thing was my first year of university. That was when I discovered a renewing of my faith. And my then best friend, who I'd known all through school, struggled to understand what had happened to me. And I'd like to tell the story that she was overwhelmed by the love of Christ that she saw in me and that I led her to the Lord, and it was all lovely from then on. But the true story is that suddenly there was something between us that we didn't have in common. We'd shared everything growing up, confidences and hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows. But she didn't want to share this. And she didn't particularly want to share me with God. And so it was the beginning of a gradual drifting apart that I'm still sad about. And the second time was when I finished university and I told my non-church-going parents that I was off to a Pentecostal Bible college in London for a year. I was the firstborn and the first in my generation to go to university, and they couldn't believe I was throwing away my hard-won education by what seemed to them at the time um, escalating my religious hobby to the extent of going off to join some kind of a cult. It was the first time in my life that I knew I was in God's will, but that that took me outside of my parents' will for me and working out how to honor my mother and father while following the path I felt that God had set out for me was really challenging. I didn't like the feeling of going against their wishes for me, but I'd promised to follow. And of course, both those examples are really small stuff. It felt big to me at the time because I'd never been one for rocking the boat. But my parents honored my decision, and although they didn't understand it then, they get it now, and I'm still in touch with my friends, even though we aren't so close anymore. But all over the world, there are Christians counting the cost 
of their faith in terms of persecution, torture, imprisonment, unimaginable levels of discrimination, attacks, rejection by their families, even to the point of death. We have two passages this morning that show us something quite uncomfortable about what it is to follow. The first is an account of Elisha and Elijah in their last hours together before Elijah is taken away from his faithful disciple. And then in our gospel reading, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's in the final phase of his ministry and he knows it. There is one thing left to be done, and it brings a sharp focus to the time he has left with the disciples. In both passages, we get that sense of urgency about what it is to be a follower. Elisha is sticking doggedly to his teacher, Elijah. He's single-minded in his desire to be with him until the last possible moment. We've had a chunk left out of the passage because it's a long one, but the middle bit two different groups of prophets approach Elisha to say, you know God's going to take Elijah away from you today, right? And both times Elisha replies, yes, I know, so be quiet. Essentially, shut up already, I'm finding this hard enough as it is. <laughs> he follows right to the last. He will not be deterred and he's making the most of every moment, requesting a blessing from Elijah that he might have a double portion of his spirit. He wants to be as holy a man as Elijah has been. Of course, that's not for Elijah to grant, so he leaves it to God to give Elisha the sign that this has happened. Does that scene remind you of anyone else in the Bible? To me, it's a kind of prefiguring of the ascension of Christ, the disciples getting increasingly anxious about being left behind without him. How will they cope? Will they be able to be as holy? Will they be able to do it? Um, will they be able to follow after faithfully? And the tension is high in the Luke passage too because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem via a Samaritan village. So this means he isn't, as was the custom, taking the long way around to avoid Samaria. He's going through a direct route. That tells you something about the urgency of his mission. However, his intention seems to be to teach as he passes through the village. So he sends messages on ahead to prepare for him. But there's no warm welcome to be had. We don't hear exactly what happened, but it seems that there were those in that village who are unable to see beyond his ethnicity, and they reject this Jew who's clearly heading on to worship in Jerusalem. The disciples are affronted. And they ask Jesus if they can deal with the situation on his behalf with some instant judgment. And there then follows a reflection from Jesus after he rebukes them about what it's like to be a follower in the kingdom of God. And that's not a comforting read either. So what can we draw from these two rather anxious situations? Following means choosing. In particular, choosing to stick with following Jesus, even if that is not always the comfortable thing to do. And it means choosing to make living out our lives as Christians top priority. To bring that point home, 
Jesus uses some really powerful rhetoric, a kind of argument of extremes to capture the attention of the audience. After all, it seems perfectly reasonable to, bury, to ask to bury one's relative. However, it's quite possible that the father of the follower who asks to bury him isn't actually dead yet. So what the man in that case is asking for is time to go home and live comfortably until his father dies and he can then fulfill his obligations and then be released from his family responsibilities. Because burying your father and saying goodbye to your family, they're good things, obviously. But what's represented here, I think, is the way that family ties and a wandering of focus can prevent us from doing the things that God has for us to do because we're always waiting for a better time to do it. I can think of plenty of people in this church who are carers, who have young families, who have demanding jobs, who are busy with grandchildren and wider family, and they still expend their time and their effort on serving here and on things that build the kingdom. And we'd be in quite a state as a church if they didn't. In both passages, there is a call to prioritize, to keep your eye on the teacher and on the task in hand. That's one of the purposes of the vision that we've been mapping out as church, isn't it? To, to keep our focus and to make sure that we don't get distracted into activity that doesn't promote the kingdom of God. And by the way, that doesn't mean no fun along the way. We know Jesus liked a party, a picnic, and a barbecue. What things is the Holy Spirit saying to you to push on with that you might have let become overwhelmed by other things? Because this is eternal stuff. This is the treasure that lasts, isn't it? Other things that seem less important in the grand scheme of things are less so. Do you know the illustration of the big glass jar? And you put in golf balls, and it seems full. Put them in right up to the lid. And then maybe you put in some fine gravel, and you give it a bit of a shake, and the gravel falls down in the gaps between the golf balls, and then the jar seems full. So then maybe you pour in some sand, because sand's even finer, and then that gets in between the gaps in the gravel and the, ping -pong ball, and the um, uh, golf balls, and, it, and the jar seems really full now. But of course, you could still pour in some water, and that would fill those spaces too. It all depends on the order. If you, if you don't put those golf balls in first, and you fill the jar up with the gravel and the sand and the water, and then try and get them in, it won't all fit. You have to put the big stuff, the priorities, in first. Providing we are gracious and loving in the way that we act and seek to serve and share the good news of the gospel, it doesn't matter if we encounter opposition. And that's another message that comes through this passage. Don't be discouraged like Elisha. Don't, don't talk to me about that. I'm single-minded. I'm following Elijah and the disciples. Look what they did. Shall we call down judgment, Jesus? No, leave it. Let's move on. 
Don't be discouraged. Don't get bitter. Expect sometimes to be rejected. Our message and even our love won't be received by everyone. Jesus calls us to be determined. Following him can be hard work, and it's all or nothing stuff. Remember his teaching in Luke 14 about counting the cost. It isn't stuff we can be fickle about. No one, he says, who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is going to be able to plow the field. It requires looking forward. It requires effort to push that plow through the ground. And of course, when we talk about following, this is as much about our heart and our attitude as it is about physical activity. You can be physically very limited, but still follow Christ faithfully and closely with all that you do have at your disposal. I know there are some people in this church who are in that season, and it's a hard season to be in because you've known what it is to be physically active and to outwardly do the things of God. And now the focus is in your, on your inner life. Sometimes all that's left to somebody who's bedbound is prayer. But prayer, by all means, is good plowing. Whatever we've got, we can still do it to our utmost for the kingdom. It still counts. It still is kingdom stuff and will change the world. Jesus keeps calling us to follow, but he makes it clear it can't be done half-heartedly and it will likely involve discomfort along the way. And he points to that sense of rootlessness that followers will likely feel. He's talking about there's no, no real safe place to lay your head, no true rest for him in the kingdom of God. It's that in the world but not of the world kind of feeling that's recorded in John 17 when he prays for his disciples. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. It's really hard teaching, isn't it, this morning? It's really hard to realize that actually there is discomfort in this because we are creatures of comfort. I know I am. It's hard to know that this is not the stuff that leads to uh, always the sense of feeling you belong, the sense of fitting in. It's meant to jar a little because it did with Christ all through his life and it did with the disciples all through theirs. Why should we expect it to be different for us? But it counts. In a nutshell, we need to be resolute about our decision to follow. And we need to stick to the teacher, come what may. We're just going to take some time now in quiet just to sit and think about that phrase. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about it. Perhaps God is saying, well done, 
keep going. Perhaps you feel constrained and limited by what you can and can't do. Then talk to God in your heart about this. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about your priorities or your distractions or about something else entirely. But don't forget as we sit in a moment that God will speak gently to you and deals with us with love and grace. If you're feeling squished or condemned, then that's not God. That's another voice. We don't want that. So come, Holy Spirit, and help us to hear you. Lord God, you told us that this would be a narrow path. And sometimes it is hard. But we thank you, Lord, that Elisha received that double portion of the Spirit and that you sent your Holy Spirit to comfort and guide and encourage us. So, Lord, fan us into flame. Where we have made a decision to follow you, confirm us in that decision. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and on the treasure that really counts. And help us push on without looking back with all our might. In Jesus' name, amen.